The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 102, a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and am like a sparrow alone on the housetop. My enemies reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever, and the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory, he shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. This will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from the height of his sanctuary, from heaven the Lord viewed the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to release those appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord, he weakened my strength in the way, he shortened my days. I said, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak you will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. Okay, we are in Deuteronomy 4 still. This is our last week in Deuteronomy 4, and it is verses 41 through 49. Then Moses set apart three cities on this side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun that the manslayer might flee there, who kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in time past, and that by fleeing to one of these cities he might live. Bezer in the wilderness on the plateau for the Reubenites, Ramot in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. Now this is the law which Moses set before the children of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which Moses spoke to the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt. On this side of the Jordan, in the valley opposite Bet Peor, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelled at Heshbon, whom Moses and the children of Israel defeated after they came out of Egypt. 
And they took possession of his land in the land of Og, king of Bashan, two kings of the Amorites who were on this side of the Jordan, toward the rising of the sun, from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, even to Mount Sion, that is Hermon. And all the plain on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Aravah, below the slopes of Pisgah. Four times in today's nine verses, the east side of the Jordan is mentioned. And each time it is given a description of the side to ensure that we understand that it is referring to the east side. The east side is outside of the inheritance, and yet there is hope throughout the verses. In the first three verses, it speaks of the cities of refuge, a clear allusion to Christ, as we saw when the main passage of the cities of refuge was analyzed in Numbers 35. There is a place for those who had remained outside of the inheritance to go in order to be safe. What a wonderful promise that is. And in the last six verses, the victories of Israel's recent past are again highlighted and once again give minute detail concerning the layout of the land. Yes, it's all east of the Jordan, but the Jordan is there and the land of promise lays on the other side. And yet the law is highlighted at the beginning of those six verses. Why would the Lord structure these passages the way he has? Our text first comes from Galatians chapter 3. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scriptures confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Every single word of the word has meaning. Every verse is perfectly placed. Every passage has been carefully laid out through the wisdom of God. And for sure, nothing said in this word is superfluous. We may not understand why things are the way they are, but that is what study is for. That is what meditating on the word of God is for. And that is what prayer concerning the word is for. If we study and meditate on the word and we still don't understand what we are being told, we shouldn't give up. Rather, we should come to the Lord with our desires. He expects us to do our part. He wants us to study. He wants us to get into the word. But he also really wants the word revealed. Paul says that the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. That is true in several ways. First, it is a stepping stone in the redemptive plan, teaching us about the nature of God, his perfection. Secondly, it is given to show us how far we fall short of the standard. As Paul says, it is so that the sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. These and other such things are obvious, and they are explicitly stated in the New Testament. However, the law is also given to show us types and pictures of other things. These can then help us to understand why certain passages are repeated or why they are positioned in seemingly incorrect locations. In understanding the typological pictures, we find out that they are not. And in understanding those pictures, we can also discern how the law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. I could be wrong, 
but I don't think it's going to be the overt nature of the law, which is going to lead Israel to the Lord. I think it is the typological pictures that will. Israel has had the law and the prophets for 2,000 years, and they have failed to come to Christ. Someday they will see the typology back here in the Old Testament, maybe even in just the first five books of Moses, and it will suddenly dawn on them that the Lord has been there revealing himself to them all along. Maybe some Jew in the, the uh, Knesset is going to turn on an old superior word sermon after the rapture, and he's going to see the typology, and he's going to say, I never thought of that before. The pictures fill in what can't be seen on the surface. Such marvelous truths as this are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is three cities of refuge. It's verses 41 through 43. So far, Deuteronomy has been a long recounting of what occurred from the time after leaving Sinai until the point where Israel is presently at. Moses also reminded the people here in chapter 4 of what they beheld at the giving of the Ten Commandments and which established them as the Lord's covenant people at that time. Interspersed into all of that have been exhortations and instructions concerning the statutes and judgments which have been taught and which will be repeated and expanded upon in the chapters ahead. With all of this introductory information now recorded, and before Moses returns to the giving of the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, this short section is carefully placed here. The land east of Jordan has been acquired. The instruction for those who will dwell in this land concerning the conquest of Canaan has been given. And the surety that Moses will die outside of the promise has been settled. With all of that recorded, an aspect of the law which has already been given must now be settled. This then explains the reason for the placement of this passage right here. The last words of the last passage we read last week said, You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Because the land is subdued, and what lies ahead concerns the land of Canaan, this point of law must be settled now. If it were not so, then Moses could be accused of failing to keep the very statutes and judgments of law which he has exhorted Israel to keep. But being prompt and obedient to his duties, Moses does what the law expects him to do. That is introduced with the words of verse 41. Verse 41 says, Then Moses set apart three cities. Az Yabdil Moshe Shalosh Arim. At that time, set apart Moses three cities. The verse begins with Az, a demonstrative adverb which gives the sense of at that time. It indicates that this passage is placed here between these two separate and independent dialogues to complete the necessary details of law in accordance with the word of the Lord. That was first stated in Numbers 35 with these words. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And of the cities which you give, you shall have six cities of refuge. 
You shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, and three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which will be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger, and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. In Moses' words, the verb set apart is in the imperfect tense. Thus, it has the sense of Moses began to set apart three cities. The reason is certainly because the land grant is still conditional. It will only belong to these tribes if they perform according to Moses' words of Numbers chapter 32, and as is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 3. Here's what it says. If the children of Gad and the children of Reuben cross over the Jordan with you, every man armed for battle before the Lord, and the land is subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead as a possession. But if they do not cross over armed with you, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. If they perform according to the word, these cities will be formally consecrated at that time. What is said here? And understanding all it entails is actually more important than it may seem. If everything concerning the designation of these cities of refuge isn't taken properly, it appears that there is an error in the word. Indeed, that is how Cambridge views it. Without directly citing their woefully incoherent argument, they say what is said in Numbers 35, here in Deuteronomy 19, and in Joshua 20, demonstrates that some various obscure people compiled the accounts. They say this because Moses could not have known that three cities would be designated on the other side of the Jordan, as is indicated in Deuteronomy 19. Here's what it says there. When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, that any manslayer may flee there. But the fact was already stated by the Lord in Numbers 35. This is a problem with scholars. They give a scholarly group, you're going to do a commentary on the book of Numbers. You're going to do one on the book of Deuteronomy. You're going to do one on 2 John. And so nobody coordinates, and the guy that does Deuteronomy has no idea what Numbers said because he's never read the Bible in his life. And he doesn't understand that the Lord has already told them that they have six cities, three on each side. The Lord told Moses the exact details of all of the borders of Canaan in Numbers 34. The claim of Cambridge, it implies that the Lord and what he said cannot actually be the word of the all-knowing Lord. Cambridge then says that the actual designation of these cities didn't occur until Joshua 20 where it says the following. The Lord also spoke to Joshua saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, appoint for yourselves cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. A few verses later, it then says, so they appointed Kadesh in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron, in the mountains of Judah. And on the other side of the Jordan, by Jericho, eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, Ramot in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation." 
in these accounts, Cambridge makes several points to justify their reasoning. It is that Numbers 35 states it, one, far more elaborately, two, in a different vocabulary, and three, with some differences of substance. And that in Joshua 20, this is stated again, but with some different terms. Their conclusion then is, this is the only fair interpretation. Well, I'll stop right there and say it's not the only fair interpretation, and it's a bogus interpretation, but we'll go on. This is the only fair interpretation if the law of Deuteronomy 19.1 had meant three cities in West Palestine, in addition to the three already set apart by Moses on the east of Jordan, it would surely have alluded to the latter. The law was obviously made in consequence of the institution of this single sanctuary and without regard to any historical tradition of what Moses or Joshua had done. And as you note, I call them the dolts at Cambridge. First, the difference in vocabulary is exactly why these accounts are written, where they are, and as they are. Secondly, the form of the verb given by Moses in this verse, which is in the imperfect tense, is exactly why this is so. Numbers 35 gave the law for designating the cities of refuge. Deuteronomy 4 obediently designates the three cities in accord with that word. Deuteronomy 19 is Moses' reiteration of that law for cities of refuge must be adhered to when the other tribes cross into Canaan and subdue it. And finally, Joshua 20 finalizes that law for both sides of the Jordan. Moses began to appoint the cities, but the appointment is conditional based on these tribes east of the Jordan helping the tribes west of the Jordan. Until that happens, the appointment is not settled. Further, Moses says to Badal, or separate these cities for this purpose, it is simply an acknowledgement that these cities will, in fact, be the ones given for the set purpose. That same word is used by Moses in Deuteronomy 19 concerning the other three cities west of the Jordan. Then, in Joshua 20, verse 2, the Lord says to Natan. Is Natan the same as Badal? No, it's two completely different words. He says to Natan, or give the cities of refuge to the tribes. This is the formal grant of the cities to Israel for the set purpose of refuge. In Joshua 20, verse 7, it then uses the word kadash, which means to set apart or consecrate. It is the root of the word which means holy, to set apart, to consecrate. Once the cities were given, they were then consecrated for the purpose. And finally, in Joshua 20, verse 9, a word used only once in all of Scripture, muadah, is seen. It signifies to appoint, and it is the final note concerning the obedience of the command of the Lord, which began all the way back in Numbers 35. The very thing that Cambridge uses to claim the words of Deuteronomy are a hodgepodge of later scribal insertions coming hundreds of years after the account is the thing that fully supports that it is one unified whole which was received by Moses and then Joshua at the times the Bible carefully records what occurred. This is why I say at times, make sure you read bad commentaries too, because bad commentaries will actually lead you to understand the faulty thinking which helps you to want to know what is correct. As I'm going to tell you right now, all of this detail which took several hours for me to compile is so that you can be certain of the fact that the word is reliable, 
without error, and it is exactly what it claims to be, meaning the Word of God. Con What's that? Thank you for that. Thank you for that. <laughs> Concerning these three cities now being discussed, Moses says, verse 41 continues, on this side of the Jordan, Be'ever ha-yarden, inside the Jordan. It should not say this, but rather on the side of the Jordan. Where the account is written is actually irrelevant. The word is always in relation to Canaan, regardless of which side is being spoken of. In order to then define which side is referred to, Moses then says, verse 41 going on, toward the rising of the sun. So now you know which side it is. Mizrecha Shamesh, toward rising sun. This explains what was lacking in the previous clause. The word Mizrach signifies the place of the rising sun. That comes from Zarach, which means to rise or to come forth. That in turn comes from a root signifying to shoot forth beams, like what you see before the sun actually comes up. Thus, it speaks of the place from which the sun rises, and therefore the east. If you saw my photo this morning, which I take a photo every day, I've done it for 15 years or more, of the sunrise. This morning, there were clouds on each side of the sun, and so it shot forth beams. It was beautiful, and it's exactly what we're looking at here. It is east of the Jordan that these cities are now first designated for a particular and important purpose. It is so, verse 42, that the manslayer might flee there. Lanu shama rotseach. That might flee there, the manslayer. As described in detail in Numbers 35, the word is ratsach. It signifies the unsanctioned taking of a human life, whether it is intentional or unintentional. Whichever it is, it makes no difference. The death was unsanctioned killing. The avenger of blood had the right, and indeed he had the responsibility, to take the life of the slayer. However, the Lord determined that if the slaying was unintentional, the slayer could flee to one of those cities and be given protection from the avenger of blood. If he was a true murderer, or even if he was innocent, but he didn't flee to one of these cities, his life was to be taken by the avenger. The cities then were for a person, verse 42 continues, who kills his neighbor unintentionally. The Hebrew reads, who slays another without knowing. In Numbers 35, a different word is used, signifying a mistake or in ignorance. Either way, both accounts signify that he did not realize that his actions would lead to the death of another person. He may have been building a brick wall and accidentally dropped a brick on another person's head, making him dead. He may have been playing baseball, hit the ball, broke the bat, and the broken bat flew into the head of somebody watching from the sidelines, and so on. It is an unintentional slaying of another human being, but it was not sanctioned killing, such as in war, judicial execution, and so on. Despite being unintentional, he is a slayer, and the avenger had the right and the responsibility to then take his life. The reason for the killing is irrelevant, as is seen in the next words. Verse 42 going on, without having hated him in time past. The Hebrew here contains an idiomatic expression, mitemol shilshom, yesterday, three days since. It is a way of saying before or in time past. There was no animosity toward the person at any time. They could have been complete strangers or they could have been good friends. Whatever the case, the person slayed another human without it being legally sanctioned. In this, he had only one choice open to him, 
a provision granted by the Lord for his protection. Verse 42 going on, and that by fleeing to one of these cities, he might live. Here, the Hebrew is very specific. Achat min he'arim ha'el. One from the cities, the these. He could flee to any one of these cities, but it had to be one of them. He could not flee to just any city and take up residence. If he were equal distance between two of them, he could choose which one he wanted to go to, and he would need to choose well, because he could ostensibly be spending the rest of his life within the walls of that city. And those cities were, verse 43, Betzer. All three cities to be named are introduced into the Bible in this verse. The first is Betzer. The name comes from Batsar, meaning to enclose or make inaccessible, and so it means fortress or defense. However, it is identical to the word Betzer, which means precious ore. That is seen only in Job 22 with these words. Then you will lay your Betzer, the gold in the dust, and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. Yes, the Almighty will be your Betzer, your gold, and your precious silver. The idea is that the ore is what people use as a defense or a protection but the person would put away this protection and trust in the Lord as his gold, meaning his protection. Instead, verse 43 continues, in the wilderness on the plateau for the Reubenites. More correctly, it reads, in the wilderness, in the land of the plain. The Midbar, or wilderness, is a place of God's grace and of closeness to God, but it is also a place of testing. Next, Hamishor, or the plain, is a word which signifies a level place. Thus, it figuratively speaks of uprightness. It is the place of uprightness. Reuben means, see, a son. Verse 43 going on, Ramot. Ramot comes from rum, meaning high or exalted. Thus, it signifies heights or lofty place. The reason why it would signify heights is because Ramot would be the plural of it. Verse 43 continues in Gilead for the Gadites. Gilead is prefixed by an article, and it means the perpetual fountain. Gad means troop or fortune. It signifies a fortune for which a troublesome, invasive effort is made. Verse 43 continues, and Golan. Golan comes from Gola, meaning exile. The NET Bible also defines it as their captivity or their rejoicing. Verse 43 continues, in Bashan for the Manassites. The Bashan means something like the place of fertile soil. Manasseh means he shall forget. These are the three cities of refuge, and they each beautifully are named to highlight the purpose of the city. In turn, each city highlights the one who these cities represent. Betzer, the manslayer, can run to the defense, laying aside his own gold or protection, coming to the one who will protect him with himself. This is in the place where God's grace is displayed, and it is in the place of uprightness. As Paul says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's Romans 10, 17. It is the state that one possesses when he comes to Christ. If you remember from Numbers 35, every word of that passage pointed to Jesus Christ and our protection in him. That is found in the territory of Reuben, or see, a son. It refers then to the defense of Christ, God's grace, and it is in a place of uprightness. Ramot, the manslayer can run to the lofty place. Though his actions deserve death, 
In Christ, God is willing to accept the one who comes to him through Christ. As Peter says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. In this, the person comes to the perpetual fountain and is granted eternal life. Being in the land of Gad, it signifies a fortune for which certainly a troublesome, invasive effort is made. In other words, it acknowledges the trials of Jesus Christ and what he went through in order to bring him to this fortunate spot of favor. Golan, the person who flees into exile is the freest person of all, if the captivity is Jesus Christ. As Paul says, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. This is said to be in the Bashan, or in the place of fertile soil. This then speaks of the fertile soil of the word of God. As Paul says, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This is in the land of Manasseh, or he shall forget, signifying that Christ shall forget the past deeds of the person who has come to him. He is secure in the place of refuge, meaning Christ. Without expanding on his thoughts at all, Adam Clark curiously tossed out the following concerning these three cities. He said, As the cities of refuge are generally understood to be types of the salvation provided by Christ for sinners, so their names have been thought to express some attribute of the Redeemer of mankind. I would go beyond that and I would say that their names not only do that, but every one of them does that. Every word in here points to Jesus Christ and what he has done for the people of the world. A simple study of the words shows that what Adam Clark surmised is exactly what the Lord is conveying to us in these three remarkable cities. Where can I go to save my life? How can I get free from what I have done? I killed a man, but not by strife. In innocence, I have slain this one, but the avenger of blood waits for me to take my life for what I have done. Is there a place to where I can flee? Is there a place to where I can run? Who will save me from what has come about? Who can rescue me from what I have done? Is there a chance for me? How will it come about? Lord, my only hope is that to you I run. Our second thought today is after they came out of Egypt. It's verses 44 through 49. Verse 44. Now this is the law which Moses set before the children of Israel. Vezot HaTorah Asher Sham Moshe Lifne Bene Yisrael. And this, the Torah, which set Moses before the sons of Israel. The first main discourse of Deuteronomy, that going from verse 1-1 to verse 440 is complete. As there was an introductory statement which led into the first discourse, so there is now one which leads into the second discourse. In other words, what is said here looks forward to chapter 5. It is an anticipatory statement concerning the law that Moses will speak out to the people. He then next further defines what that means. Verse 45, these are the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments. The Torah, or law, is subdivided by Moses into several categories which are variously translated. Using the New King James Version, which I do for all sermons, this is the breakdown of the Torah that Moses uses. The first are the testimonies. Ha-edot. It is the word edah, a witness or testimony, coming from the word ed, which also means a witness or a testimony. One could think of something set out for the well-being of God's people. The next is the statutes, hahukim. It is the word hok. It signifies something prescribed or owed, and thus a statute. It comes from hakak, which means to cut or inscribe or to decree. 
One could think of a written precept that is to be obeyed. And the third are the judgments, ha-mishpatim. It is the word mishpat, a judgment or a determination or a verdict, something like that. It comes from shafat, meaning to judge or govern. A judge will put down a ruling which is legal and it is to be obeyed. The Lord is the ultimate judge. His rulings are to be followed. These divisions of law, which together form the Torah, or law, are those, verse 45 going on, which Moses spoke to the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt. The Hebrew says, Betzetam mi Mitzrayim, in their coming out from Egypt. It speaks of the entire time of their coming out, even until the present time. Egypt means double distress. They were brought out of that and to Sinai. The Lord spoke out some of these words at Sinai, such as the giving of the Ten Commandments, which will be seen in the next chapter. However, there are differences which will be seen in the Ten Commandments between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. There are other words of law which have not been spoken before, such as the details of what to do with the annual tithes, which is found in chapter 14. Therefore, the words in their coming out from Egypt are an all-inclusive statement which brings them up to the moment in which Moses is right now speaking. All of this is the Torah, or law, which Moses revisits and expands upon now. Verse 46, on this side of the Jordan, Be'ever ha-yarden, inside the Jordan. It is the same phrase as verse 41. It is an expression which requires further explanation, and so Moses next provides it. Verse 46 going on, in the valley opposite Bet Peor. The word for valley here is gai. It comes from geva, meaning exaltation. Figuratively, at times it speaks of arrogance or pride. That word comes from ga'a, which means exaltation or triumph. Verse 46 continues, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. This goes back to Numbers chapter 21 and the repeated story in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Sihon means tempestuous or warrior. Amorite comes from Amar, meaning to utter or to say. Therefore, the name signifies being spoken of and thus renowned. Also, the word Cheshvon comes from Chashav. It is a word which signifies to consider, calculate, or devise. Therefore, it signifies an explanation of things or intelligence. This is the land where they are now, and what occurs here is included in the thought of the previous verse, in their coming out of Egypt. They have come out of Egypt, but they have not yet entered into the promise. In this location where they are, we then read verse 46 going on, whom Moses and the children of Israel defeated. The defeat of the kings on the east side of the Jordan has been highlighted several times already. It is a statement surely given to bolster the confidence of those who are going to cross over and enter into the promise. These great foes were defeated, and so how much more will the Lord defeat the foes Israel would face once they enter into the promised land? Although this is speaking of Israel collectively, the truth applies to any person who has come to him. We have had enemies that we faced before coming to Christ. Everybody here agree with that? Then Christ has defeated them. How much more then should we trust that in our life in Christ, he will defeat any and all foes who come our way? The repetition for Moses is a call to us as well. He has defeated sin and the power of the devil in our lives. How much more will he defeat death, though it may come through the power of his own resurrection? Praise God for Jesus. 
We are to be confident in our walk with the Lord, trusting him from beginning to end. For now, Moses goes on, verse 46 continuing, after they came out of Egypt. It is the same expression used in the previous verse, betzetam mi mitzrayim, in their coming out from Egypt. This shows that the entire process of coming out is what is spoken of here. It is an ongoing statement which has, even now, in human history, not been fully realized. If you remember all of the typological pictures we've been given, they're still coming out of Egypt. Verse 47, and they took possession of his land and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Sihon is mentioned first in this because it is the land taken from him in which Israel is currently dwelling. He was also the first king defeated, followed by Og. It is in this land that they wait out their final moments, receiving the words of Moses and looking forward to their long-awaited inheritance in Canaan. As was seen in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, Og comes from the word Uga, which is a round-baked cake. That comes from Ug, which means to bake. The Bashan signifies the place of fertile soil. Together, these two are jointly described as, verse 47 going on, two kings of the Amorites, Shinei Malkeha Emori, two kings, the Amorite. In verse 46 and here, the word Amorite is singular. It speaks of the people group as a whole. Each king had his own sphere of rule, but they ruled over the same ethnic group of people. Verse 47 going on, who are on this side of the Jordan. It is the same phrase already seen three times in our few verses. Today, it speaks of a side of the Jordan without any particular distinction of which side. The indicator of which side is affixed by the subsequent clause, which is, as closely stated in verse 41, verse 47 going on, toward the rising of the sun. Place of rising sun, meaning eastward. The repetition of these verses throughout the past chapters, and even in this chapter, is given for specificity. It is given for a reminder of the past, and it is given for encouragement in the future. And it is given as a testimony that what is written actually happened. It occurred at a specific place at a particular point in time, and it is in a location that was settled based on the events which preceded what is being conveyed now. All of the repetition is an important note of surety to Israel and to the reader of Scripture, and yet Cambridge flippantly states the following. This part of Deuteronomy 4, verse 46, and Deuteronomy 4, verse 47 are, of course, superfluous after chapters 2 and 3. Can you imagine calling a part of the Word of God superfluous? as if God had wasted his breath in specifically detailing everything he has given us in his word. The arrogance of such an attitude is astonishing. At times, I will say during a sermon something like, the words here seem almost superfluous, don't they? And then I go on and explain why they are not. To simply state that it is so without any qualification is a damnable offense against the word of God and thus against the one who gave us this wonderful treasure. I would not want to be Cambridge as I stood before the Lord. I don't know if they're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ, if they're saved or not. But either way, I would not want to be a person standing there saying, I called into question your precious word. But enough of that for now. Moses continues with his description of the land which was previously possessed by these two kings. Verse 48, from Arar, which is on the bank of the river Arnon. 
as has been seen, Aurora means strict, bare, or naked. The word translated as bank here is Safa. It signifies a border as in a lip or an edge or a bank, like in the lip of a river, a garment, the mouth, and so on. Thus, it also means speech or language, because that is where language proceeds from. The noun meaning river is Nahal, and it implies a wadi which flows during the times of rain. The word is from the verb Nahal, which speaks of obtaining an inheritance or possession. And Arnon means rejoicing. This large expanse of land then extends, verse 48 continues, even to Mount Sion, that is Hermon. This is the only time that the name Mount Sion is used in the whole Bible, but it is explained as being Mount Hermon. The name Sion may be a shortening of the name Sirion, which was given in chapter 3, but it is said to come from the word Si, which means loftiness. That comes from Nasa, meaning to lift up or to carry. Hermon means sacred. These borders describe the southernmost and northernmost areas of the land that Israel has conquered. This land is then further described, verse 49, and all the plain on the east side of the Jordan. The word arava, translated as plain, goes back to a word signifying a pledge, and thus it speaks of a guarantee. This plain is again described as being on the east side of the Jordan, and it stretches, verse 49 continues, as far as the Sea of the Arava. It is the same word, Arava, which was just translated as plain in the previous clause. This is why some translations will call the plain the plain of the Arava, or some will call the sea the sea of the plain. This is translator's preference, and one should not get confused by any reading because of this. Finally, we come to, verse 49 finishes with, below the slopes of Pisgah. The word here translated as slopes was first seen in chapter 3. It comes from a word signifying a foundation or bed. That then comes from a root meaning an outpouring. Therefore, it means either springs because they pour out upwards or slopes because they pour out downwards, both of which pour out. As Ha Pisgah, or the Pisgah is a mountain with a cleft in it, it probably means slopes. The words of these six verses first spoke of the Torah, or law, and all of its testimonies, statutes, and judgments spoken out by Moses. Moses means he who draws out. Here, as is seen elsewhere, he pictures Christ. It is he who draws out the will of the Lord and who embodies that will. There is the note that this is spoken in the coming out of Israel from Egypt. Egypt, or double distress, speaks of the land where man lives. He's born in sin, and he cannot redeem himself. Thus, he is in double distress. The words are ongoing and speak of the process of bringing Israel out. It is not after they came out of Egypt, but in their coming out. Christ has accomplished his work, but Israel has never accepted it. And so the narrative is ongoing. Hence, there is the continued stress saying it again and again in different ways, that they are still on the eastern side of the Jordan, meaning the descender, which pictures Christ. They are in the Gai, or valley, opposite Bet Peor, or the house of the opening. Peor comes from Pa'ar, which is used in Isaiah chapter 5 when speaking of Sheol, the pit of death, opening its mouth beyond measure to receive those who reject the Lord. When under law, whether trusting in the law for righteousness or in rejecting the law in satisfying one's own desires, the inevitable outcome is death. 
It is a reminder of their previous failure of falling into idolatry. But being in the guy or valley opposite it, this speaks of the triumph over that. They are in the place of this exaltation right on the border of the Jordan or the descender picturing Christ. You remember the picture of the Jordan? It goes from Mount Hermon, covered in snow, the pureness of Christ coming from heaven, flowing all the way down past Israel, all the way down into the Dead Sea. This is a picture of Christ, where Christ came to die for the people of the world, and then the water flows up from the Dead Sea into the atmosphere and returns back to Hermon, and the cycle's been going on for thousands of years, all picturing Christ, okay? It is a way of showing that they can go in either direction now. They can go toward Beth Peor or toward the Jordan and into the promise. It then noted that this is in the land of Sihon and Og with all of the specificity concerning their names, meaning their titles and the land which they ruled. But it notes that they were defeated again using the term in their coming out of Egypt. Previous sermons have shown that these two people pictured the Antichrist and the false prophet. The foes are defeated, these two great kings of the renowned. After mentioning them, the land was again described. Aurora means stripped bare or naked. It is what the book of Hebrews refers to. It says there in Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Aurora is said to be on the sefat, or lip, of the Nahal, or river Arnon, signifying the inheritance of rejoicing. This land then extends all the way from there to Sion, or loftiness, also known as Hermon, or the sacred mountain. It is a picture of heaven. After noting that entire expanse, it then mentioned Ha-Arava, or the plain, and the sea of Ha-Arava. The word, as we saw, comes from a root signifying a pledge or a guarantee. The whole area, from the inheritance of rejoicing all the way to heaven itself, as well as the plain, is given as a picture of what is being offered to Israel. The same word, aravon, which is the root of arava, is also found in the New Testament. Three times in the Old, in Genesis chapter 38, three times in the New, always speaking of the Holy Spirit. It is arabon. It is used to describe the pledge or guarantee when one believes in Jesus Christ. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, one can see a summary of what Moses is relaying to us now in just two verses. In him... You also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the aravon, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. There is the inheritance, there is the guarantee, there is the praise, there is the rejoicing, There is the attainment of the heavenly place, and all of this is summed up with the final words, below the slopes of Pisgah. It is the outpouring of the cleft. It is the spot where in Numbers 21, it was said to look down on the wasteland. That would be to the east. In Deuteronomy 34, it is where Moses will ascend to before he dies in order to look west towards Jericho. The wasteland signifies what is past. Jericho and the land of promise signify what is ahead. 
It is an offering to Israel to speak the word, receive the inheritance, obtain the guarantee, and enter the promise. But one must pass through Jesus Christ to do so. They can look back to the past or forward to the promise. This is Israel's choice, and they're going to be facing this choice very, very soon in redemptive history. It is an offering to Israel. This is what is being presented here as an introductory passage which will reiterate the law, the impossible body of requirements that will be set before Israel. That body of law must die outside of the promise and the inheritance must be received by faith. The enemies are defeated. Access to the promise is right there awaiting the people. The cities of refuge have all been named and they all point to Christ. The layout of the land speaks of Christ, of the inheritance, and of the promise, but the law must first be repeated to the people once again. The reason for this is that the law itself will call for its own ending. It did not get them into the promise the first time, and it cannot get them into it the next time. Having said that, this is all typology. Israel will, in fact, enter Canaan, and when they do, they will be under law. That will continue for the next 1,400 years until Christ comes and completes his work. The typology is given to show us Christ and what he has done, but the actual narrative is given to show us the true history of what occurred with Israel under the time of the law. We can't miss this particular point. The failings of Israel under the law are as important in revealing Jesus Christ as are the pictures of Christ within the law. They could not have known these things at that time because the law was to be a tutor to the world of what the pictures only anticipate. However, since Christ's coming, these things are known and they are explained in the word. The problem is that Israel rejected Christ and they rejected that word. Thus, the very lives these people lived have become a picture of their own exile, punishment, and future reconciliation. I think this is probably why some names, places, and descriptions have been given so many times in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. It is to alert them to inspect the words, see the patterns, and then respond to what is presented. And though we are not Israel, we are all expected to do the same. The word, this beautiful self-confirming word, has been given to us and to show us again and again and yet again that God has sent the Messiah. He has sent Christ, and we are under obligation to respond to that. Let us be responsible and let us act accordingly, calling out to Jesus, leaving the barren wasteland of our past existence, and accepting the inheritance which is pictured in our passage today. Jesus Christ is our place of refuge, and he is the one who will guard us as his possession until the day that he brings us home to glory. Yes, let us pay heed and respond according to that wonderful call. I do this each week. I stop before I give you our final closing verse, and I ask you to just simply consider your state in this life. You're a human being, and you are mortal. There is not any doubt at all that you are going to die. It's not a question of if. It is a question of when. We're all going to go to the pit of death unless the Lord comes for his faithful at the rapture. And all I can tell you is that before that day happens, you must make a choice. It is appointed for man once to die and then face the judgment, is what Hebrews says. You have that choice to make. Jesus Christ has made the offer. He has come and he has fulfilled this law. He's given his life and all of the typology that we've seen week after week after week for, I mean, years and years we've been in these first five books of Moses. And it keeps pointing us to Jesus. 
because God wants us to understand that there is really only one way to be saved, and it is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He wouldn't have gone through all of this trouble if there was another way. That's all there is to it. So please, just admit you're a sinner. Accept what Christ has done on your behalf. Call out to him, and he will save you. And it, the deal is done after that. We saw the word aravon. It signifies a pledge, a guarantee. If God was to take away your salvation after you received it, then it would prove that he is not faithful in his guarantees. In fact, it would be a really crummy guarantee if that were the case. So hold fast to the truth that you are saved by the blood of Christ and you will be saved by the blood of Christ despite your failings. All right, we got a closing verse here for you from Ephesians chapter one. This is right after the verses I just read you from Ephesians. Paul goes on that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Next week is Deuteronomy 5. It's verses 1 through 6. It's like going from a miry bog and into a swampy bondage. It's entitled, From Bondage to Bondage. That'll be our 19th Deuteronomy sermon. And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you, but he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, before I give you our poem, I read you today Psalm 102. I'm gonna read this again. Don't anybody turn there. I don't want you going to turn into Psalm 102. I'm just gonna read you something. It says there, no, I went to 120. See, that's my dyslexia. I read things backwards all the time. I get numbers backwards. My brain is pointing. I'm looking at the wall right now. Psalm 102 says, and when I read this, I want you to tell me where in the New Testament this is cited. I said, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of your years. Your years are throughout all generations. Here it is. Of old, you have laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. Where is that cited in the New Testament? Huh? Nobody? Hebrews. Hebrews, who say you get a Maserati. You can drive this back to Homestead, Florida. I'll even fill it up before you go, right? Got a Maserati. Oh, boy, we got somebody visiting, shaming all of you. Oh, oh, wow. Okay, good job. Wonderful. All right, here we go. This poem is called On the East Side of the Jordan. Then Moses set apart three cities on this side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun is where they shall be, that the manslayer may flee there who kills his neighbor unintentionally. Without having hated him in time past, these cities he did give, and that by fleeing to one of these cities, he might live. 
Bezer in the wilderness on the plateau for the Reubenites, Ramot and Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan and the Bashan for the Manassites. These were those three sites. Now, this is the law which Moses set before the children of Israel. This is the law which he to the people did tell. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which Moses spoke to the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt on this side of the Jordan as well. In the valley opposite Bet Peor in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites who dwelled at Heshbon, whom Moses and the children of Israel defeated after they came out of Egypt by the Lord's hand alone. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, king of Bashan, two kings of the Amorites, who were on this side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun, where starts the day and ends the nights. From Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, even to Mount Sion, that is Hermon, hallelujah, and all the plain on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arava, below the slopes of Pisgah. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We shall follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the wonderful blessings of this life. Thank you for your kind hand upon us and all the things that you've blessed us with in this nation. And we certainly lift up the people we mentioned at the beginning of this service and all of the troubles that they're facing and, you know, surgeries and the like. And, and uh, we pray for the people also on Thursday night that we mentioned as well. And we lift all of them up to you asking that your kind hand will be upon them for healing. But if you do not heal them, to help them to understand that you are sovereign over all things and you have a purpose for their affliction. And Lord, we also lift up our wonderful president. We ask that you continue to strengthen him. You've put the right man in the office for this time, and we pray for him. We pray for a favorable election, both for him and for the House and the Senate, so that we can take care of business in this country and get it back on a stable footing. But maybe that's not your will as well. Maybe we're going to be raptured out of here, and this nation will devolve into complete anarchy. Who knows? We'll leave these things in your hands, but we do pray for them as long as we're here, knowing that it is right and good to do so. And Lord, we thank you for this precious word you've given us, the beautiful words of this sermon, which are not superfluous in any way, shape, or form, but which are intended by you to lead us to an understanding of what you want for us and for the people of the world. Thank you for that. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.